welcome. This is a message from Victory Church. We trust you'll be inspired and encouraged by today's message. working with the Childhood Cancer Association for two or three years now and uh, every year we put on a fair for them. So today, um, like we do every year, we do a fair for them. It's like at Disneyland. We've been given permission from the Adelaide Council. At 10 o'clock this morning we start where we've blocked off parts of Hindley Street. We've got vintage cars coming in to take kids that are suffering with cancer in their families for drives. And we've turned the whole plaza of our building in Hindley Street into a Disneyland. There's Princess Land. There's all the different lands that the kids will be there all day being given gifts. Every family will be given gifts. And the thing that amazes me about this project is a lot of it is being led by our men. A lot of our men are so involved in these projects and people in the community that don't go to church, we just did a $350,000 renovation uh, three or four weeks ago of the headquarters of the Childhood Cancer Association across the road from the Children's Hospital. We did not, as a church, hardly put a cent. To, how much have we put towards it, Jonathan? Probably five grand, ten grand. Out of the $350,000, Leaders of businesses, some of them up this part of Adelaide, came to us and said, could we please get involved? Asking if they could, and now they've said, don't ever do another project without us. And we've come into partnership with the community, where the community is starting to trust the church. One of the guys that's really blown away, some of you would know him, is Scott McBain. Scott McBain is a radio announcer, some of you know Scott. Scott's not professing to be a believer but I've become his mentor. We've got a whole lot of guys now in the community that are coming to the church to be mentored, even though they themselves don't go to church. And he said to me just recently, and he said it over and over again, he said, this story should not be sold, but it must be told. He goes, this story should not be sold, it must be told. He said, what you guys are doing in the community changes my mind about the church. Now, he's given me permission to tell you this. As a young boy, he was sexually abused by his choir master from his church. And so he went through horrific sexual abuse, not just him, but a lot of the boys that were in the choir with him in, uh, in the country here in South Australia. Uh, the guy was charged for pedophilia but died before he went to prison. And Scott looks at me and he goes, I know that that left a lot of damage in my life. And to think that he now pops into church, he said, I just want to be a punter sitting at the back. He said, I don't know that I'll ever become a believer, but you never know. He says, but I just like to hang out with you guys because every time I hang out with you guys, you lift me up. I feel better. I feel awesome about myself. And I think it's fantastic because we're not called to be the light of the church. We're called to be the light of the world. And we don't do it through religious activity. We do it through proper, genuine connection, not to get bums on seats, but to really care for our community. We are called as churches to pastor our communities, to love on our communities. And something unbelievable is happening with men right now. All over the world, men are raising up. Now, I know there's ladies in the room and I don't want to offend them. But at a women's conference not that long ago, the speaker gets up and goes, what's that useless piece of skin on the end of a penis? And people just look, this is a women's conference. And she said, a man. Now... I'd like to say to you this morning, that's a pretty sad statement, but it's not true. Men are rising up all over the place and becoming men again. Men are standing tall again. Did you hear about the midget that um, went to the doctor? And he goes to the doctor and he goes, doctor, doctor. He said, every time I walk, I get a really itchy bottom. <laughs> 
He said, it's really itchy all the time and I don't know what to do. And so the doctor stands him on a table and he said, don't worry, just look out the window, we'll be fine. So he goes and gets these scissors, he comes back and all the midget can hear is snip, 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 snip. And he goes, how do you feel now? He goes, oh, I feel so much better. He said, what did you do? He said, I just trimmed your Ugg boots. And... Um, But more than trimming Ugg boots is what's required for men to stand tall again and for men to stand up and truly become men. And so there came a day in history where a king called David, an incredible king, the Bible called him a man after God's own heart. It gives us hope this morning. He committed adultery. He stuffed up. He got the woman's husband killed. He gets so pregnant. I mean, this is some story. And the Bible calls him a man after God's own heart. Because it's not how you start in life, guys. It's how you finish. And this guy, David, who becomes a king, who God remembers him in the New Testament, wasn't a brilliant father either. He stuffed up as a dad so many times. I know I look back over my life and I think I've got three kids and five grandkids and I thought I could have done that better. I could have done this better. And all of us as fathers in the room today could say that. But he comes to the end of his life and he he, he talks to his son Solomon, who's about to build an amazing temple. And he says to him, son, take courage and be a man. Take courage and be a man. That scripture's in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 1. He says, take courage and be a man. There is no doubt in my mind that there's been an outright attack on men in the last probably 20 years, and men have lost the courage to be men. They may be male by birth, but we become men by choice. And so what happens, and that's not an original statement I've, that's been used before, But, you know, we've seen the feminist movement that started as something genuine. It started because women were abused. It started because uh, at certain times in history, women never had a voice. They they had to grin and bear it and go through uh, all kinds of uh, physical, mental, sexual and physical abuse. But today we have swung so much the other way. The vast majority of men in our society today are imprisoned and crippled by a condemning voice that tells them we don't measure up. Have you noticed in the movies, it's the women that are kicking in the heads of the men. I mean, you know, the women have become the heroes and the superheroes and fighting for their rights and all kinds of things like that. And this was also an overreaction uh, because of the abuse that happened to women. And so today, I believe there is a balancing out of men rising up and not being aggressive and not being passive, but being godly leaders that become attractive to women again because of their leadership. And we see a new generation rising up of men that know their purpose in life and not afraid to truly be men. A Catholic priest by the name of Richard Rohr, who's a lecturer on male spirituality, affirmed that more is required of manhood than just being sensitive to others. We need self-discipline, courage to risk rejection, need to speak the truth and a readiness to accept individual and social responsibilities. Real women want men to be sensitive but not passive. There's a difference between being sensitive and passive. And the good news is things are changing. But one of the reasons why we've had this incredible challenge in manhood is the issue of fathering. There is a generation of teenagers. The amount of times that teenagers are coming to me and saying things like this, will you be my dad? Will you be my dad? It's pretty sad that today there is a cry in men that are 60 years old to still be fathered. 
There are men of all ages that have missed that father connection. And I want to say for those of you that belong to this church, there's a new spirit coming on the church where the church becomes a father to the fatherless, where the church becomes a fathering place. And the biggest burden for me now in my mid-50s is I want to father a generation. And, you know, fathers are just missing in our world today because of all kinds of issues. And in John chapter 14, verse 8, it's the night before Jesus' death. And, you know, of all the things that one of his disciples could have asked Jesus, I mean, you would leave the most important question on someone's last day on earth. You would ask the most important question. And Philip, one of the disciples, says to Jesus, show us the Father. Show us the Father. I think there's a generation out there saying, can you show us a father? Can you show us a dad? This nation is fatherless. Just look at our political arena right now. It's a fatherless system. There isn't any nurture. There isn't any mentoring. It's just about winning elections and it's pretty sad. But the Bible says at the end of the Old Testament that a day's coming where God's restoring the hearts of the fathers to the sons and sons to the fathers and there's a revival taking place in marriages, families. i got women now coming and saying, we've gone too far the other way. We need to release our men to be men. And I believe that there's a, a great sense of God at work right now. Jesus said in John 10.30, I am the father of one. Uh, you know, how many can, men can say that today about their fathers? Me and my dad are one. You know, I've had all kinds of challenges in my relationship with my own dad. We are both ministers. And yet all my life, my father had a different view on spiritual things and stood apart from me. So the day I graduated from Bible school, my father, who's a pastor, doesn't show up. The day I get my credentials, he doesn't show up. I remember sitting in the car with my wife at Paradise Church. I was the youth pastor at that time. I'd just done a wedding for a cousin of mine. And uh, it was the first time my parents had come to hear me speak publicly. They had to be there. It was a wedding. I remember going to my mum and I'm saying, how did you find today? She goes, well, it's not the way we do things. I'm an only child. I have no brothers or sisters. And please don't feel sorry for me today. I'm saying this for a, a point of reference. I remember getting in the car and I punched the steering wheel of the car. I said, I'm not abusing women. I'm, I mean, I was a dramatist, you know. I was, my wife's sitting in the car and I'm going, I, I have never hurt them. I've never given them a bad name. I've never done this and I can't please them. No matter what I do, I can't please them. And my wife just turned to me like only she could do. And she goes, well, you're not doing it for them. I said, I know that. I said, I know that. But there's something inside of every man that would just love dad to say, I'm proud of you, man. You've done a good job, mate. You've done a good job. And, and so I remember the hole that it left in my heart, thinking I'm doing everything I've been put on the planet to do. And somehow I still can't please them. And that kind of pain is deep. And we can cover it up with machoism and all kinds of isms. But at the end of the day, we were created to be affirmed. We were created to be, be believed in and somehow the spirit of the father needs to come back to the planet. And I, and I want to tell you, there's young men in our church, every Sunday I turn up, there's teenage kids that come up just for a hug. Last year when we did the Cancer Foundation Fair, Father Christmas was hugging the kids with cancer and giving them wishes and presents. And an 11-year-old boy sat on Father Christmas's knee and he said to him, son, what can I give you for Christmas? What would you like? He said, I would like a hug. I would like a hug, 11 years old. Doesn't seem to be a lot to ask for, eh? I'd like a hug. 
And so today we got men that are confused and about their sexuality and all kinds of things because of the lack of same-sex affection that's got nothing to do with sex. When the Gulf War took place in 1991, Barbara Walters asked on television General Norman Schwarzkopf how he felt over his past victory in Iraq. With tears in his eyes, the Allied commander declared, my dad would have been proud of me. Even a person as big and as strong as him thought, gee, my dad would have been proud of me. Father Richard Raw tells the story of how he worked with a nun who used to go into the prisons and one day a prisoner asked her for a Mother's Day card. And so she thought, maybe I should get one for all the prisoners. And so she got a box full of Mother's Day cards and they all went out. They were filled in and they all went out. And then she decides, well, I'll do the same for Father's Day. And found out later, much later, after Father's Day had come and gone, that every card was still left in the box. Not one had been sent out because the men in that prison that she was working in didn't even know where their fathers were. So we can talk about what's our society coming to, but there's a new restoration of the spirit of fatherhood and the church should be a father for the fatherless and men should be able to come into church and know that they've got brothers and they've got fathers that can stand through them through all that life brings their way. And I know this church is one of those churches. Here, come on. Fantastic. Robert Carmichael, an award-winning filmmaker and footballer, tells of how football caused him major physical problems. His 13-year football career resulted in a cracked sternum, torn ligaments in his hip, shoulder and neck, and a totally reconstructed knee. Carmichael, at the age of 40, is still needing surgery and lives in constant pain, and today he can't even play with his kids. This is what he said. My father had been an athlete and it was through sports that I won his approval and made him proud of me. It was our only common ground. In early years, because of pain, he thought of quitting, but he couldn't face the shame of being a quitter. When I told my father, he created a scene and bullied and shamed me into continuing. He didn't want a coward for a son. And so he continued just to make his dad happy at the cost of his own physical pain. So today, very briefly, I don't know what your situation's like. You may come from a good dad. You may have a great relationship with your dad. Fantastic. That is awesome. So be a dad to those that don't have that relationship with their dad. Become part of the answer. But for many of you in this room, I think you will identify what I'm about to just give you very quickly. There are six types of fathers that I want to mention to you today. And I wonder which kind of father you come from or you were connected in growing up. Now, before we go any further today, this is not about the blame game. We don't excuse our behavior or the way we do things, but we need to understand where we came from. It's not about excusing things, it's about understanding. I've got a lot more compassion these days when, you know, you can look at a generation of kids and go, these rat bags out at night, you know, running amok. Well, maybe we need to realize that these 13-year-old drug addicts probably come from a father who was a drug addict and maybe a grandfather who was a drug addict or don't even know where their mother and father hang out. Life just sucks and then you die is the language of some of the teenagers. So before we write them off, we don't have to excuse bad behavior, but we do need to understand. We didn't understand where people come from. The first kind of father is the absent father. Through divorce, through death, through too much work, the child feels a feeling of abandonment 
Often kids from this kind of home will become very self-sufficient and take responsibility very early in their lives for their own lives. And they become very, very serious, very young. The issue is, how are we going to introduce these kind of people to God? Because you see, if you've been raised in that kind of fathering, your attitude towards God will be that God will leave you and abandon you. And and you have very little trust in a God being there for you. Because if you come from that kind of background, that's how you view God. Secondly, there's the passive father. He's the one that's home, but not home. Can't say, I love you. Shut down emotionally undemonstrative. Often fathers with this disposition feel very much like they can't show softness or tenderness because it's losing your manhood. Real men don't cry. What a whole lot of rubbish. We were made so we could cry. There's nothing wrong with crying. And so they can't show compassion, but they do show anger. Showing love is a sign of weakness. People raised under this kind of home feel that God only loves them from a distance. There's no taste and see that the Lord is good. You're saying you can have a personal relationship with God. What's that? What do you mean when you say you can have a personal relationship? Because you've got no idea how you could even start a relationship like that. There's no affirmation. If Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is standing in a river, about to be baptized in a river of obedience, the heavens opened up and Daddy speaks. Because you're my boy, you're my son, and I'm pleased with you. Because in life, there will always be another voice. And that voice will be, if you are, if you are so good, if you are such a good man, why are you full of crap? Why is this happening in your life? And so Jesus is baptized, the son of God, and has to have the father speak and say, that's my boy. I'm pleased with him. And inside of every suit and inside of every pair of overalls and inside of every trendy pair of jeans, there's a little boy saying, where's someone telling me I'm your boy? I'm happy with you. You're okay. And so you've got the absent father, even though he might be around. Number three, the performance-driven father. Disappointed when you don't perform. The number of suicides in Singapore, I go to Singapore a lot and I go to Malaysia a lot and the amount of suicides of young people that don't get A plus grades when they graduate from university because their parents will get upset with them. They go and kill themselves because they didn't match up to mummy and daddy's expectation. And we see here the performance driven father that's disappointed when you don't perform. Show no affection if you don't behave. You're valued for only what you can do. You start to perform. You put on an act. You begin to live a fake life because you're looking for affection in all the wrong places. The amount of times that I would cut the lawn and get a comment like, I might as well do it myself. You left that bit. You left that bit. You didn't do that properly. I used to play violin, believe it or not, when I was a kid. Not because I wanted to. I grew up in the era of the Beatles. I wanted to play guitar. Last Monday night, we had a reunion of my 1972 class. We had it at Glenelg. And we had it at Glenelg Pizza House. They're all alive. All of them. Some of them have lost their wives with cancer. I mean, we hadn't seen each other, for some of us, for 40 years. And we got together. We brought our guitars. We brought our saxophones. We did all the Credence Clearwater Revival songs. (laughs) Down on the corner, 
And we had this big sing-song. People started coming in off the streets. They must have thought we were all drunk. We had the biggest night. It was just an amazing night. And they know what I do. And they started asking questions about the church. And are you like the televangelists where they tell you to send some money in to bless the ministry? And so they started to act it out better than the guys on TV. We had a great time. I was telling you that for a reason. What was I, what was I talking about? Oh, and I was playing the violin. Yeah, the violin. I didn't play the violin because I like the violin because my father was a traditional religious man who didn't believe in drums in church because you don't turn the, in those days, you, some of you might not even know the word now, some of you young guys, we don't turn the church into a disco. So I had to play the violin and I hated it. He went and bought me this expensive violin made out of redwood built in the 1800s. I used to have to go to the Conservatorium of Music in Curry Street. And the only reason I loved going every Thursday night, there was a hot dog stand on the corner of Rundle Street. (laughs) It wasn't the violin lessons. It was the hot dog stand. Those big red ones in a bun. You too could have a body like mine if you neglect it. (laughs) And uh, I went by force because... He wanted me to make him look good. I remember one night we had a baptismal service in the little Italian church at St. Peter's and I'm playing the violin and they used to film it on reel to reel. No, reel to reel eight thing, whatever they used to call it. They used to reel the, uh, f- film the baptisms and while we're standing up doing a song, they shifted the chair from behind me and so when I went to sit down, I hit the floor. Violin went flying everywhere and everybody's laughing. I'm 14 and the whole church is laughing. Believe it or not, I was skinny back then. I only had one stripe in my pyjamas. Now they've turned into circles. But, uh, you know, I... <laughs> the only thing that was big was my ears. They looked like aeroplane wigs sticking out at the sides and I'm playing the violin. Now, you've got to be in an Italian culture to understand that. You know what prosciutto is, you know, parma ham. And they go, look at him on the... And they showed the reel to reel the following Sunday in church. And when I hit the floor, everybody's laughing, saying, look at Danny, he's cutting prosciutto. 14 years old. The next day, I went to King William Street, a place called Trims. And I sold the violin for about $14 or something. It was worth a lot of money. And you know something? I got home and got the belting of my life. For we spent all this money to give you lessons. We did this. We did that for you, for you for you and this is the thanks we get what about what I want to do what about the fact that I go to school and get laughed at because I'm a dago from Paynham I mean they were the days you went to school with sandwiches so fat they took up your whole bag and you could smell them so you guys now go to cafes and order a focaccia and you think you're trendy we used to We used to take them to school and they could smell me coming. I used to sell my focaccia sandwiches to my Aussie friends so I can buy a hot dog on hot dog day. I've got to think about hot dogs. I so wanted to integrate into the Aussie culture because we were the Dagos from overseas. You know, they don't have daylight saving in Italy because it takes nine months to make a Dago. But anyway, oh, that's bad. That's a dad joke, that one. And so 
the abusive fathering that it's about them. I'd have to dress a certain way to make them look good. And you know what happened, guys? My son, Chris, and my son, Michael, they started to grow up. And I thought, I'm never going to raise my kids like that. I'm sorry this morning, but I made the same mistakes. So the minute Chris starts growing his hair long, it didn't bother me. I love trendy things. But my dad would get upset. So I'd go off at my son. You look like a poofter. That's how I used to go off, right? <laughs> you look like a poofter with that hair like that. You're doing I used to go absolutely bunta, typical Italian stupid you know, reaction that I said I would never do when I got married. All the things I said I wouldn't do. I repeated. Because what you don't repair, you end up repeating. What one generation doesn't repair, the next will repeat, but they'll repeat it far worse. What one generation allows, the next will enjoy. So there's generational responsibility we have here for effective fathering. The performance-driven father. And that's where you get stories like Robert Carmichael that I just read to you. The next one, number four, is the authoritarian father. Wants obedience and truth more than love and intimacy. See, for me, I only felt a, a little bit of love when I did everything I was told. And it was like, you perform, no caress, but correct. I went through a life of being corrected and never being caressed. And I want to tell you, you can't change what you don't love. You can't change what you're not prepared to touch with affection and love. And for this legalistic type of upbringing, there is no love in the law because it's all rules and regulation. So we want obedience in public and no relationship in private. I grew up with obedience in public so we all look good. It's no coincidence, and Jonathan works with me, that I'm a total open book with our church. There is nothing in me that's hidden because I just hate that super spiro religious activity that makes people look good and they're rotten on the inside. Let's all put our hands up and say we're all rotten and we all need help and we're all on a journey and we're all beggars needing help. And I want to tell you, Australia doesn't need people that look good. needs people that wrap their arms around and say, hey, listen, we went through tragedy with my son. And last time I was here, you know the story. And if you don't know the story, I haven't got time to tell it today. But it was severe. What freaks me out, a son who thought he had cancer made up the story. And it wasn't true. And you all know the story. And I'm driving off here today to work with the Cancer Foundation. Jonathan and I went and sat with the Cancer Foundation and they were standoffish. When we came to offer to help them, I said, you've read the newspapers about my son, haven't you? You were with me, Jonathan. And they said, yes, we have. I said, ring anybody you want. Let me now tell you the story because the newspapers didn't tell the truth. Now you do what you want and if you don't trust us, that's okay with us. They began to ring people in the community that had worked with us, the, uh, the children's hospital and other people, and this is what they said to the Cancer Foundation, get out of the way and let these people do whatever they offer. You won't regret it. And they rang us up and said, sorry, we've been a bit standoffish, but go for it. Now, this year we've baptized more people than in our history. We've baptized in our church. People are coming in broken. And you know what they're saying to me? Now that we know you've suffered as a father, you'll understand my pain. No longer are we looking up onto a platform of perfect people. Now, we don't excuse wrong behavior, but we've got to acknowledge 
where we are, broken but open. I remember when my son's situation happened, someone gave me a CD of, a, of T.D. Jakes, a sermon on leading while bleeding. Hey guys, we've got to do life. We've got to help others when we can't help our own marriage. We've got to help others when our kids are off the rails. It's no excuse not to reach out and do what's right because we've had a bad experience. I could have so easily given up when my son hit the wall. But now, because I haven't given up, we're seeing the greatest fruit this side of what happened than we've seen in our whole history. Because it's how we finish, guys. And it's not about this legalistic image. That's why I hate religion so much. Religion should not be measured up against true Christianity. Jesus Christ was a man's man. He, if every pot, every man on the planet lived their life the way Jesus Christ did, we wouldn't have the rubbish we've got in our society today. Number five, have I got, what, two minutes, five minutes? I'll be real quick. Abusive father. So the one before that was the authoritarian father. Now the abusive father who inflicts physical pain, words that hurt, harsh punishment, emotional and sexual abuse, but verbal abuse. You know, sticks and stones break my bones, but names will never hurt me. It's rubbish. It's the other way around. A lot of people would rather have a punch in the head physically than hear the words that destroy and go on forever. When I was a youth pastor at Paradise, there was a girl every Saturday night would come and she'd only slightly slashed her wrists because I would sit on the edge of the platform and just wait for kids to come and talk to me. And she would come every week. I thought, oh, here she comes. She'd create a problem to get my attention. And then one day she said to me, you know, my mother's in the occult now, separated from my father. And when I was a kid, And I used to misbehave, both my parents. My mother would say to me, you're fat and I wish you'd never been born. Now, I found out later that that was true. It was said. And the father would say, you got the devil inside of you. You got the devil. What's that kid going to do? And one day she did go too far. And by the time I got to Royal Adelaide Hospital, she was dead. And then you go to the funeral. And there's mum and dad throwing themselves over the casket crying. They weren't crying for her. They were crying for the guilt they were carrying of not putting it right while she was alive. And friends, I know I'm getting older and now I sound like an old man. But life is short. And tomorrow is not guaranteed. And we've got to tell our kids and we've got to tell our friends and we've got to tell our mates what we've got to do. I remember the day I drove past my grandfather's house. My dad's dad was different with me. My grandfather loved me. He never said a negative word about me. He accepted me. I was the first Italian in Adelaide in our family tree that married an Australian. So in 1974, I broke all the traditions. I was an only child. I married an Australian that was one of 10. So you try to work that one out. I didn't marry the girl my parents had prepared for me. I broke away at 16 years of age. I left my father's church because I hated religion. So I know what it's like. And I remember walking away from all that and I was telling you that for a reason I can't remember. Oh, my grandfather. And one day I'm driving, see, that's senior moments right there. <laughs> Did you hear about, no. <laughs> so I'm driving past my grandfather's house. He's sitting out the back of the house, little walking stick. He's a Kubra hat on. Just sitting there looking at the vines in the backyard. Never heard anybody. Held my grandmother's hand for over 20 years while she was on a deathbed. Of uh, She was blind. 
She was dying of diabetes. She died at 62. And for 20 years, he would just sit by her bed and just take care of her. A beautiful man. I drove past his house and something inside of me that I believe is God's spirit that speaks. It's not religious, it's real. Go in and talk to your grandfather. I was on my way to paradise. This was 1994. I'd just taken over the church at South. And as I ignored that voice, I went to paradise for a pastor's meeting. I thought I'll drop in on the way home, say hello to him. I love my granddad. On the way home, we'd run late with our meeting and I thought I need to get home. Sharon and the kids are waiting. The next day he died. I never got the chance. I really felt that day. I just wanted to go and say, hey, granddad, thank you for not being prejudiced towards me when I married an Aussie. Thank you that you told my parents to leave me alone and just love me. Thank you that when I, you know, looked at you, you always had unconditional love for me. There was no conditional attached, no no conditions attached. But I couldn't say it. I said it at his funeral. I did his funeral. I was able to open the Bible and read scriptures and put his name in there. 1 Corinthians 13, my grandfather was kind. My, see, sometimes we build monuments to people after they die with the stones we threw at them while they were alive. Been to those funerals where you think, well, oh, I didn't think they were that nice when they were alive. But you've got to say the nice things, don't you? You've got to say all the nice things after they've died. Why don't we say it now? Why don't we take opportunities now? You know, you, 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 fathers with daughters here today. Fathers with daughters, if you don't put your arms around your daughters, they'll let other men put their arms around them and don't get upset when she loses her virginity at a young age. I've been dealing with a father in the community who's only bought love with his kids with money. And he's found out this week that his daughter's been lying to him. She's 13 and she's been sleeping around. He's devastated. Not a a believer, not, not that it wouldn't happen amongst believers. Fathers, those of us that still have a chance, my daughter's just moved back home. She's 28 years old. And I have to every day now tell her that I love her. I don't agree with a lot of stuff that she sees in life and how she views work. I get annoyed. My Italian background, or maybe it's just being a bloke when they sleep into all kinds of hours and go out to parties and they don't clean their rooms and a visitor comes and you have to clean, check the toilet out before they can use it, make sure they've left it in some kind of normal condition. And as an Italian, I get heated up. I get worked up. I have to go for a walk, settle down. Because I don't want to repeat the abuse that I've seen in some examples around my life in the past. But then last of all, there's the good father. He's found in Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son. The kind of father that can let a son or a daughter go when they make choices. People make choices, but still waits for them to come home and doesn't throw it in their face. Isn't it amazing that in the story of the prodigal son, when the son left home, he said to his father, give me. After he went to the pig pen, he came home and said, make me one of your hired servants. As fathers, both in the church and in our homes, we've got to believe that our kids will go from give me to make me. And the only way we can do that is to be waiting for them. We don't have to chase them through the pig pen. But when they come home, we don't say, told you, say, you're not. <laughs> Welcome home. You see, because I reckon the father would have had to be a son sometime. It's not about two sons, it's about three sons. A father who once was a son. An older brother 
I'm glad that the father was waiting when the kid that mucked up comes home because the older brother was full of jealousy and reaction and everything else. And we've run out of time, guys, today. But I just want to encourage you that there's a new day coming on the church. A son was a slave to sin. The older brother was a slave to law and rules and regulations. But thank God for another son who was a slave to love. And this morning, if we can just bow our heads in prayer. I, I just know there's a new day coming for men. Do you know, again, please trust that I'm not, you don't know who I'm talking about. But I'm in a restaurant two weeks ago. By accident, I was supposed to meet somebody and we got stuck in traffic and we diverted to another place. As I went into the place we weren't meant to go to and I'm sitting there, there's a man looking, looking at me from across the table. I didn't recognize him and as they got up to leave, he came up to me. He goes, you're Danny, aren't you? I said, yeah. And as I looked at his face, I remembered him 25 years ago back at Paradise. I don't even know if he goes to church anymore, but he burst into tears. He said, yesterday I said to my wife, I don't know where Danny is anymore, but I'd like to talk to him. And we bump into each other when I wasn't even meant to be there. So a few days ago, I met with him. And he couldn't talk, just cried and cried and cried. Because his son told him the night before that I met him the first time in the restaurant. Hey, Dad, I'm moving to Sydney to live a gay lifestyle. And I'm going to throw myself into that lifestyle. This is the way I am. And all of a sudden, a father blaming himself for all kinds of stuff. And because of what I went through with my son a couple of years ago, he said to me, I couldn't think of anybody else to talk to. Because <laughs> I knew you'd understand. I said to him, you feel like this, don't you? Yes, yep. You feel like this, don't you? Yep. You feel like this. And your wife is saying this, right? Yep. He goes, how did you know? I said, I've been there. And you can't keep whipping yourself as a father. I grabbed his hands in a Chibo cafe. People were standing around and he's just bawling. A man who's well respected in our community. And I said, keep loving him. This is what you need to do. And he goes, I want to. I'm so angry at myself. I wished I'd been there for him more when he was little. Just poured his heart. We can't change the past, men. But we sure can change the future. And this church has been planted here. And these men's breakfasts aren't just something to do to make this church look trendy. This is a place where fathers can be made. This is a place where sons that don't have fathers will find fathers. This is a place that men and boys who didn't think they had a purpose in life can find that purpose again and get out there and make a difference. Because when you get a purpose, then you will get a picture. And that picture is the dream. That picture in your head. A lot of people go, chase your dream, chase your dream. You can't chase a dream if it's not attached to a purpose. But when you get a purpose, then you will get the picture. Then your passion will come back. And once you've got your passion, your processes will fall in place and you can make a difference not for a day not for two but for a long life and father this morning while every head's bowed and every eye closed we don't want to be religious in this room but we do want to be real and the thing that I leave to last today is when my father was not a father to me the way that I needed I love my dad I got a good relationship with him but he didn't unlock those things in my life because he didn't get them unlocked with his dad I don't blame him I went to the bible 
And I found that Jesus Christ not only became a father to me, he became a model for me to follow. I began to follow his steps. I began to study how he treated people. I began to study how he loved the disciples and how he mentored them, how he released them into their destiny and how he united them when they were in conflict. And when I didn't have a real father connection to build my life on, I found a father. Because Jesus said, when you see me, you've seen the father. And today, if you're here and you've never connected with God, maybe it's church and religion that's turned you off. But please, can I say to you, either Jesus Christ was who he said he was, or we're all a bunch of wallies in this room today. We're all a bunch of idiots wasting time. If he's just like Buddha, if he's just like any other, then guys, we're all deceived and we're all brainwashed. But I want you to know today, a close look at Jesus Christ and his claims, he would either have to be true or he'd have to be an absolute idiot. How can a man say, I am the way to God? Today, our media has brainwashed us and we're afraid of Jesus' brainwashes. Our brains need washing, guys. And let's choose the right people to wash them. And I want to say today, if you have never connected with God and you've never connected, I'm not going to ask you to connect with him. I'm going to ask you to be open for him to reveal himself to you. Because I went to church for the first 16 years of my life with my father and all I had was religion. Now I don't have religion. I have a relationship with a true person, Jesus Christ. And it's real. And while every head's bowed and every eye closed, if you say, Danny, I would just like Jesus to unpack that for me. I would like Jesus to reveal himself to me because I'm not sure. I don't know and I don't want to get hooked into something that later I'm going to walk out on and not be committed to because I didn't really believe it in the first place. But today, if he really is real, Danny, pray for me that my eyes will be open for me to see who he is. And when I do see that, I'll follow so you've got nothing to lose today if you've never, ever connected with God to let me pray for you, for God to do the work, for him to come and reveal himself to you. Because he'll do it in a way that you'll know. I know that I know that I know. I've got lots of atheist friends. I've got lots of friends. Scott McBain, one of my top friends, he goes, Danny, I started as an atheist. Now I'm not sure. Maybe I'm a bit agnostic at the moment. I said, well, you're walking in the right direction. You know, No worries. We'll get you there soon. <laughs> so if while every head's bowed and every eye closed if you just want me to pray for you for that moment to happen for you of illumination I gladly do it, I won't embarrass you just lift up your hand, put it down again I'll pray and I'll hand it back to Tony I've probably gone way over time so is there anyone in the room today who says Danny pray for me right across the room thank you, thank you so much that's fantastic now this one here and I'll pray quickly but meaningfully there's a major disconnection between you and father and your father's some, for some of you is dead now and yet that hole in your heart can be filled. For some of you, you don't have a father. For some of you, there's been a brokenness with your sons and I want to pray for 2012 to be a year of healing for you and your relationships. If that's you, lift up your hand today because I know there's many, many, many. Okay, father, I pray today. Lord, I've tried to share my heart about this fathering thing. We've run out of time now, but I just pray. God, do the bit that I can't do. Father, I pray for all the sons that are out there ticked with their dads, all the people that are out there annoyed about something, that, Lord, 2012 will be a year of the family reunited. It'll be a year of hope. It'll be a year of truth, a year of love, and that, Lord, men will be free to be men. Boys will be able to connect with their dads again and vice versa. And I pray that this house, I felt it right at the beginning of being asked, that this house will be a father's house where men can come. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
This is the end of the message. Thank you for taking the time to listen, and God bless.